this newspaper might have said, you know, two sentences about it. And all in all, when, you know, all of that research kind of combined, I ended up getting just about every, you know, fact that was sent out to the media that you could print. Um, and then later on, when we were um, at Game Informer magazine, they uh, had a room where they were just kind of throwing everything they were sent. And so we were, you know, helping them go through that and, and digitizing it for five weeks. In doing that, we found uh, the actual press kit from uh, Life Fitness that they had sent out to the magazine. Yeah, I'm like, if I had just had this, I wouldn't have had to piece all of that together. I would have just been like, okay, this is everything they wanted you to know about this. It's a, it's like if Eternal Life was like a like a cake recipe and you had pieced together all the ingredients from everything else and then you finally get the real recipe. Yeah, like, I, okay, I figured out the eggs. I did figure out the flour and everything, but man, <laughs> it would have been so much easier if you had just given me this in the first place. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment about the episode. And if you're watching on Spotify or listening on a traditional podcast platform, please follow, rate us five stars, and leave a review if you would be so kind. Thank you. Welcome to the Way to Know You podcast, season two, episode 33. My name is Nick Rounds, and I will be your host. My next guest is a professional historian, preservationist, and retailer of video games. She's a co-director of the Video Game History Foundation based out of Emeryville, California as well as the co-owner of Pink Gorilla, a retro video game retailer based out of Seattle, Washington. Additionally, she's a co-host of the Video Game History Hour podcast, where they deep dive on games and consoles. When she's not busy dusting off her prize Wonderswan collection, she's restoring game cartridges and keeping customers safe from bootlegs. More on that later. Kelsey Lewin, wait. I know you. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> A, a heck of an intro sometimes i forget how many things i do until someone starts talking it, until someone starts introducing me on a podcast or something i'm like yeah that's a that's a lot of things <laughs> i'm very busy and you are you are very busy um yeah i mean you're more or less your your full-time job no matter where you are is devoted devotion to video games whether it's selling them preserving them or anything else it's just it's it's all things video games which i think you've you've done the right thing and centering your passion your professional life and your and your passions around video games so actually let's start there uh let's start where the trouble begins i always like to start with like how you became a nerd like what is your nerd intro story so talk to me about like what are the things that basically turn you into a video game geek sure yeah i mean i i definitely didn't think that i was going to have a career in the video game space mostly because um it took me until i was probably like 18 years old to realize that that is a career that like people actually work in this industry and it doesn't just materialize on shelves in front of you. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been someone, I've was someone who played games my whole life. Um, I, you know, started with my dad's original game boy when I was like three or four years old um, playing super Mario land and Tetris and baseball on it. And uh, you know, Pokemon was kind of the first big game to really, uh, sink its teeth into me and make me be like, ah, okay, yes, this is a thing I like. This is a thing I'm going to always like. I'm here for this. But, um, you know, I wasn't 
I wasn't one of those kids that like had every gaming magazine and was like super up to date on all the news. I had, um, you know, I was always playing a game, but um, wasn't really until I was in college and started getting invo more involved in like the retro gaming scene and the uh, game collecting scene that um, it started to be like a, you know, eat, sleep and breathe video games kind of deal. <laughs> Yeah, because you, you moved to Seattle in 2012, right? And shortly thereafter, you got a job at Pink Gorilla, formerly known as Pink Godzilla, which is a retro video game store. There's a lot of retro video game stores in the Seattle area, which is amazing. Um, but I think Pink Gorilla, especially now these days, is probably one of the most famous ones in the area. Um, I guess, so I'm uh, natively from the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where Emeryville is from, which is why I said Emeryville, not Oakland, because I know what the difference is. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, that was that was good. I was like, "Oh, you know exactly where we are." Okay, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm very familiar with Evil uh, and and all the oh, things we'll associated. Yes, exactly. And Rudy's Can't Fail Cafe, which sadly no, closed. In... it closed. Oh, yeah, okay, it closed. you knew that. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sadly closed down. I had many a breakfast there, and then just drove past the Pixar lamp all the time. But yeah. Um, sorry, I lost my train of that. Oh, uh, about retro gaming scene. So. Uh, you're, you're a Seattle transplant as of 2012. I'm a Seattle transplant as of, of 2016. Um, and one of the things that kind of like really took me aback, so I'm in the video games industry myself, I'm a game designer. Um, and one of the things that kind of took me aback is like how saturated the retro video game scene was in Seattle. But then you think about uh, the fact that Microsoft is here, Nintendo of America is here, and much of their gaming companies, you realize, oh, wow, there is a lot of saturation of games here and thus gaming consoles and stuff like that. Um, from your perspective, as somebody who moved here in 2012, started working at a retro video game store, and then also for the past decade has been very much involved in the retro gaming scene and now the his historical cataloging of it. What is your take on the scene? And even from like when it's when you kind of started here back in 2012 to like now, like what are some of the trends or interesting things about this particular area that kind of really sticks with you? Yeah, Seattle's definitely a really big area for um for this and it kind of always has been um the biggest retro game convention uh is it's in portland not in seattle but you know pacific northwest based um it's just it's it's a really large kind of uh i don't know like a mecca of of retro game stuff um right and yeah i think i think that does have to do at least partially with the amount of kind of tech and game industry that this area has um but it's, you know, it's grown a lot even just since 2012. I mean, there have always been a decent amount of video game stores in this area, um, but certainly the idea of uh, game collecting has kind of ballooned. Um, I would say probably starting around 2016 was when it really started kind of um, noticeably taking off. And then obviously over the pandemic um, kind of got it's it's really, really big boost in interest. Um, so that's kind of happening everywhere, but obviously in a highly concentrated area like Seattle. Um, yeah, from about when you moved here uh, to now is is really when it's started to take off and become, uh, you know, a big pastime, I think. Um, and you know, to be clear, a lot of our customers at Pink Gorilla, the, the vast majority of our customers even, um, are not necessarily collectors. I mean, we, we do sell retro games, we do sell very rare games, um, but there are 
more people who are coming in to find, you know, a, a PS4 game to play or, um, you know, maybe rebuying a, a PlayStation 1 or a Super Nintendo or something to kind of relive their childhood a little bit, but not necessarily diving all the way into this as a hobby, more um, just as a way of kind of reconnecting with stuff that they that they used to love. So um, it's a it's a good mix up here. You know, everyone's kind of um, video games are very, very accepted up up here. Um, that's true around the world, I think, more so now than ever. But um, but yeah, especially up here is very, very like, um, you know, you can still totally be like a uh, like a frat guy or a jock or something and, and, <laughs> and still be into retro games and no one will think it's weird. Dude, bro, these ice climbers would be so cool. <laughs> I mean, you'd, you'd be surprised. Like, uh, I would say a ton of our you know, we have one location that's right by the University of Washington, which is a, you know, big university here um, in in the States. And yeah, a, a ton of our customers are uh, college kids just kind of reclaiming stuff that they grew up with. They're also buying modern stuff. But, um, you know, so you asked about trends. I mean, that's now that I've been doing this for a decade, it is it's pretty clear that once people hit their like early 20s maybe even late teens it seems like that's when the combination of nostalgia slash i finally have some disposable income now kind of meets this nice apex and uh you get people kind of um you know just trying to reclaim some of the past stuff they enjoyed so when i first started that was um more like nintendo 64 um, it has graduated to GameCube and even Wii a little bit now. I know it's weird to think of the Wii as retro, but uh, <laughs> that's that's where we're at now. Is that the the Wii was a long time ago, folks? So yeah, um, yeah. I mean that that is absolutely a trend, and, and particularly with Nintendo consoles, but it is across the board too. I mean, you know, PlayStation Two and PlayStation Three, and you know, Xbox and Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty have been climbing in popularity as well. Yeah, I mean, we're coming up on 20 years. Uh, I started in the games industry in 2006 when uh, it was a transition between PS2 and PS3, PSP, uh, Xbox 360, like all that stuff was kind of on that cusp around 2006. And it's funny to kind of come full circle towards everything that I was working on when I first started out my career is now very much retro. And it's basically people that were my little cousin's age who I was buying like SingStar or Guitar Hero 4 when he was growing up or, you know, new Call of Duty 4. Like I worked on Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, Modern Warfare and I remember playing that in Alpha and being like, this is going to change everything because it's in 60 FPS and people are going to lose their minds. And now it's just like, that's just kind of like the status quo of what Call of Duty has been for like the past 20 years. Yeah. But I digress. Um the th one of the things that I find most interesting about Pink Gorilla is like, I'd actually never seen a Super Famicom game in person before, which sounds kind of strange, but I guess that's, I mean, maybe that might be strange for you to hear, but. No, you know, not, I mean, I had never seen one in person until I moved to Seattle. So mm. <laughs> not strange at all. I'm sorry, go ahead. Continue oh, with your question yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I just, I had never seen one in person before. Uh, I think the first place I'd actually seen it was in Suica um, up on Capitol Hill. They had a, really funny collection of Famicom games, which I'm guessing they had gotten from Pink Gorilla, but I'd never seen a Famicom game in person. And uh, in addition to like just having like games that you kind of claim from your childhood, um, I think it's just really interesting and really cool just to see games that you would normally never be 
be exposed to just be out at Pinkerella, which I think is actually really exciting to be like, hey, did you know about this? Um, and a plug for your YouTube channel, which you're not really active on per se, but there's some really great deep dives, is that you've highlighted a lot of really cool and interesting um, niche, like kind of shovelware and or things that kind of like happen that exist. So you're like, how the how did this happen? How does it exist? Um, like Glucose Boy um, and other like edutainment stuff, which I think is really fascinating. Um, so highly recommend anybody who's listening to this, definitely check, uh, Kelsey's channel out about that. Cause it's actually really interesting. Also the game history org Thank podcast you. as well. Um, really great deep dives on that kind of stuff. Cause I think you're a really good researcher and I really enjoy the content that you put out. So. Thank you. Thank you. I, w I wish I had time to do more of that, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, you know, just to, to comment on the, uh, the Japanese stuff, especially, um, that's something I am very um, I'm particularly passionate about at Pink Gorilla, and I think something that sets us apart a little bit is, um, yeah, just I, I want people to, A, be exposed to some stuff that they might not be aware of already. Um, you know, there's a lot of really great uh, Famicom exclusives, uh, you know, things that only came out in Japan for various systems, um, many of which you don't need, you know, any knowledge of the language to play. Um, but not only that, I mean, I think especially as prices and interest and stuff in, in retro gaming kind of continues to rise, um, the Japanese games can be a really good budget option in a lot of cases, um, particularly on systems like the Game Boy. You know, Japanese Tetris is the exact same game as U.S. Tetris. There's not a line of Japanese text in that game. Um, you know, that's just one example, but there's a, a ton of games where um, there is functionally no difference or sometimes literally no difference between the two, uh, between the two regions. And, um, you do get a pretty significant price, uh, difference as well. So you can, you know, if you're like, oh, I really want to play Kirby, but man, that game is like $25 on the Game Boy now. And, um, you know, that just, that seems like a lot, but, oh, it's, you know, it's $10 for a Japanese copy or, or whatever. I'm, I'm, those numbers are sort of correct i don't know <laughs> i don't know if i could tell you with utmost confidence sure, that those are sure, the exact sure. things we charge for but um but you know the point stands is um i just i think it's good to kind of expose people to that uh to other regions and other um areas of gaming that they might not otherwise get a chance to and then uh, that's reflected in our merchandise as well too so we we carry a lot of like um import japanese plush and and keychains and, and stuff like that so it's kind of a um, a unique experience for, um, for like gift shopping and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that, um, when I first started out, I was a localization tester for the Sims and I was playing the Sims in like Portuguese or, um, uh, simplified Chinese stuff like that. Uh, and I got Do really they good. change the Simlish in other languages. Nope, the Simlish is exactly the okay. same. All right. you know, I was just which, curious. It's just it's just <laughs> text prompts. Like the German obviously was the one that was always the most ridiculous because it's mm -hmm. like blah, blah, spiel at the very end. Um, but yeah, no, the Simlish is universal. Um, but yeah, I just I just got beaten on flashbacks of testing the Sims and playing it all day, every day in a different language. Um, yeah, it's possible. But it's funny because like I would expect the Japanese versions to be more expensive, but 
go figure. What are you going to do? Yeah, there's there's just I mean, there is the occasional exception to this rule. But, um, you know, by and large, there's just not really the same. Um, not that there are no retro game collectors in Japan. There absolutely are. There is a thriving scene, but it is nowhere near the um, size or intensity that we have uh, here in the States and also in, in Europe and elsewhere in the world. Um, and, you know, Japan's a country that doesn't have a whole lot of real estate. Um, so having a collection like, you know, the one you see behind me here is a lot more difficult to do in a, um, I mean, I'm in Seattle. It's not that much better. Let's be real, <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's, it's still, it's more difficult to do that in like Tokyo than, um, than it is to do in many places in the States. So. Right. The, the apartment in Tokyo is similar to an apartment in like, you know, Manhattan where it's like, enjoy your broom closet and your 300 yeah. square feet of bed and bathroom and maybe like a kitchen if you're lucky. But yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I totally get that. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier, which I think is really interesting, is um, people getting some disposable income in their 20s and kind of chasing after their childhood, like the uh, the mom gave them away uh, generation, where it's like, whether it be a toy or a video game or something, there was something you had in your childhood that meant a lot to you that is suddenly gone. Um, and you mentioned some of the trends of like um, GameCube and uh, Wii and everything else. Um, is that kind of still what's really hot right now, per se, for that 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 nostalgia generation? Is there anything else that seems to be catching on, which is kind of interesting? Um, it's all that same generation. I mean, it's um, GameCube. If, if you have been paying attention to like pricing trends at all, which I mean, I don't, I don't expect anyone to be unless they're either in this hobby or just um, super curious, but um, GameCube games on the whole are more expensive than they've ever been. Um, the GameCube for as popular as it is, especially now, um, one of Nintendo's worst selling consoles of all time. I mean, literally only the Virtual Boy and the Wii U performed worse. It was soundly beaten in that generation by Sony and Microsoft. Um, and so really like supply is just not there in the same quantities as it is for a lot of the other Nintendo systems. Um, and so obviously that drives the prices up. Um, there's huge demand for it right now. Um, and then, yeah, like Game Boy Advance, which is really the same, you know, same same generation, just handheld, um, is kind of seeing that same uh, renaissance right now, where it's just, um, you know, prices are are going up due to demand. Um, and then also, I mean, something I think people don't consider with handheld stuff is it's really easy to lose a Game Boy game um, or a DS game or a Game Boy Advance game. Um, you know, that's something that can fall between the cushions somewhere, fall behind a drawer somewhere and just completely disappear. So um, in in greater quantities than I think really any other video game to this point, I think a lot of the copies that exist out there are just simply being lost or accidentally tossed. Um, so, you know, I mean, ev again, everything is, is supply and demand. But yeah, I would say GameCube and Game Boy Advance are probably on their... Uh, on the steepest incline right now. Um, I suspect that uh, we is we and DS are kind of on their way right next to it. I, DS is already on its way up. Um, thankfully for both of those systems, those are some of Nintendo's best-selling consoles. So supply is going to be there in much greater quantities than, than the GameCube. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm seeing it going right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I remember uh, I passed on the GameCube, but I had a lot of friends that had it. Played a lot of Double Dash, um, and uh, I actually replayed uh, 
or I purposely sought out Eternal Darkness because I never played it before. Um, my friend Aaron, uh, who made the game Nevermind, recommended it to me. It was kind of like the inspiration between, behind Nevermind. So I was like, all right, I got to go play this now. Um, and then uh, Resident Evil 4, that was really the main thing that like I had FOMO about uh, GameCube about because up until only a couple years after that, like Resident Evil 4 was basically not out on anything else except for GameCube for a hot minute. Um, but yeah, I definitely had some FOMO about that for sure. Um, so um, in working working at Pink Gorilla, um, initially as an employee and then later as an owner, um, you've had a lot of interactions um, with customers shopping your store. What have been some of the most rewarding or fulfilling interactions that you've had with customers that have visited Pink Gorilla? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I am really excited anytime I get to reconnect someone with uh you know, a, a piece of their childhood or um, sort of like a, a missing piece where they're like, I had a system. I can't remember what system it was. I think it was purple. You know, I, I played a game that was kind of like this and, you know, just kind of getting to do the, the um, mystery solving with people. And then, um, you know, that, that sort of reward is, is enormous. Um, we are coming into my favorite time of year, which is uh, when the holiday shopping starts, because we tend to get a lot of um, like, you know, uh, parents and friends and stuff who are coming in and they're maybe a little bit less educated on um, on what they're looking for and just being able to kind of um, help steer them. Like, you know, if you come up to me and you're like, I have a nine-year-old, um, I know they like, you know, Roblox or whatever, um, what should I get them? Um, and being able to just kind of solve that mystery with them and, you know, get them, get them hooked up with a switch and, you know, with the uh, a Lego game and a, you know, a Mario game or something like that. Like it's, um, that is a really, really fun, um, part of the job for me. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any like really specific one. Um, <laughs> uh, Todd Fry once came into the store to, uh, uh, make fun of his own game. Uh, which was really unexpected and fun. He, he did um, the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man, which is kind of infamously, you know, not a super great port, but one of the best-selling Atari games of all time. Maybe maybe the best-selling Atari game. It was, you know, it was enormous. Right. Um, huge Pac success. Yeah, made that guy a millionaire. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, sort of an infamously not great of it so um yeah him coming in one time and like pointing at his own game on the wall and, and laughing at it and uh um saying that thing sucked you know was <laughs> was um was a fun one for me um yeah i mean i love when we have uh developers come in of, of any kind and you know to be able to see uh especially older developers who you know are um often a mix of excited and confused to see like the Genesis game they worked on or whatever on the wall. And it's, it's still worth like $25 or whatever. And they're like, really? Why? <laughs> um, so those are always really fun too. Um, I don't know, you know, I've been doing this for, for a decade now and um, it really, I mean, it's easier for me to say this now because I, I don't do it full-time anymore. You know, I've the, uh, Video Game History Foundation is my full-time job, and then um, right. I am I am a a part-time <laughs> owner who um, you know doesn't have to put in fifty hours a week in the store anymore. But uh, it still never gets never gets old. Like it's always a new thing every day, and um, 
you know, I've, I've had a lot of really rewarding interactions with people over the years, even if it's just, you know, figuring out a game together or bonding over like, oh, I loved this game or, or recommending things to people or getting things recommended to me. I mean, it's all it's all really fun. Speaking of the store, um, so between the time that I contacted you and the time of this recording, um, there is a pretty there was a new story that happened um, over your international district uh, store that had been robbed and vandalized. Um, as a small business owner that very much cares about their employees and their safety, um, what kind of conversations that you, have you kind of had around um, just keeping your business safe and keep your employees safe? And um, I'd imagine that has to be like a really scary experience going through that. Yeah. For um, all parties involved. Yeah, it, it definitely has been. I mean, um, we've been in that spot in the International District for uh, almost 17 years now. And um, it has, you know, it's kind of uh, every area has its ups and downs, I think, in, in terms of uh, uh, how, I don't know, how well managed it is. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I love the International District. I have I've loved that store for so long. And so it's very frustrating to kind of have a, uh, um, a string of incidents kind of all one right after another um, when they had really, really never happened before. I mean, you know, as a business owner, petty theft every once in a while is expected, but um, you know, the more extreme stuff is, is not. And so we've had to, you know, have, we've had to beef up security there, um, which is, one of those things you just you're like you know it has to be done but doesn't feel great doing it um and uh you know just just really try to make everyone feel as safe as possible in that in that location so we've we've made a lot of um security improvements to our unit um and you know still kind of ongoing conversations about um what the future of that place is i think our, our specific location there is very good for visibility, but it also has, um, it's, it's a, uh, like a unit inside of a building, but with a lot of, um, outside facing windows. So there's basically, I mean, the issue is that there's a lot of ways to get in. Um, right. and so it's not, it's not particularly, uh, secure in the same way that like our other location is where it's just a single entrance and um you know it, you only you only have to really worry about securing one area so right. um it's been a learning experience um we have you know added a lot of things to that location and i mean to both locations too just for good measure um to kind of uh you know make it a little bit more secure um i am very happy to see that there are, uh, it, it seems like there are going to be some changes in that area. Um, the International District, I feel like, um, like I said, I, I absolutely love that area. It's been incredible. And then just over the, basically since the pandemic, um, uh, you know, I, I I will insert zero politics into this, but it, it has really just kind of been forgotten um or uh, neglected as an area and and really suffered for it so um seems like things are probably on the upswing which is great news um i i don't have anything to like report about <laughs> about that location right now but um you know it's it was a learning experience it was uh not a not an experience i wish on any business owner but one that you know if you're if you're around for 17 years i feel like at some point you know, you're going to have the incident that makes you rethink some things and add some things. So right. we've had it now. 
<laughs> and you recently uh, announced that you're going to do the Capitol Hill store as well um, opening. Is that just kind of like a fallback of let's open something new and see how it goes? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a lot of reasons. We've we've always wanted to be in the internet or in the uh, Capitol Hill area because it's just I mean, it, it's such a good fit for our kind of store. Um, it is absolutely right. the right kind of vibe for a uh, a video game store, an import store. Um, it's, you know, if, if anyone who's listening is not super familiar with Seattle, it's, it's the trendy part of town. It's the sort of like, you know, it's young and there's a lot of really good restaurants and, and you know, trendy bookstore and that sort of thing. Um, so we are, we're excited to be among that. Um, there used to be a GameStop in Capitol Hill. There are no longer any GameStops in all of Seattle proper, which is yep. wild. There's not a single GameStop in Seattle. There's, you know, like, I think there's still one in uh, in White Center or Burien or something like that. But, yeah, you know, that's a 25-minute drive from Seattle. Um, yeah, I purposely camped out for my NES Mini uh, at that GameStop that was in Seattle uh, on purpose. And that's the only place where I got it. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I definitely... You know, now's kind of the time for there to be another Seattle Pink Gorilla. Um, now that there's, uh, you know, there's no GameStop to, not that we are in any way, shape, or form a GameStop, but we do, you know, we'll carry uh, all the popular latest releases and we do carry modern games as well. So if you're looking for PS4 games and um, Xbox Series X and Xbox One games and um, all of that good stuff, Switch games, like we, we will carry those just like a GameStop will and with better prices. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of reasons to open that. Um, the International District Store is a frustratingly small location. Uh, we are kind of always in this ebb and flow of... Um, of inventory management there. And I don't even mean like the trade-ins there are fine. You know, the, the actual, um, you know, the amount of Xbox games or whatever that we have there is often, um, you know, totally fine, but it's things like keeping enough GameCube controllers or cords or something in stock because we just, we don't really have a back room there. We don't really have a lot of space right. for storage. So, um, you know, we're kind of constantly refilling that place. So that's, that's not something that this will um, fix by any means, but it will, uh, it's a large enough location. Um, you know, it's, it's more along the lines of our, of our larger university district store that we can kind of have, have shipments sent to both and, and kind of um, strengthen, you know, two big stores will strengthen the one smaller store, I feel like. So right. um, yeah. And, and, you know, like this is not, again, I've got no plans right now on the international district store that we can announce right now, but, um, you know, having a third store does make, uh, you know, decisions on the smallest store. Um, we can be a little bit more agile about our decisions there, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. Sure. Um, but, but mostly we are just extremely excited to be, uh, uh, moving into the Capitol Hill neighborhood um which by the way if you're visiting seattle you're you might end up in that area anyways it's very close to the convention center um it is on the uh the light rail um and uh just yeah having a a big spot in that neighborhood and being able to kind of like build a store from the ground up is a is really exciting so um i just went and picked out paint today so we're uh nice. we are we are on our way right now Without doxing myself too hard, that's where I live, is in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. Oh, awesome. 
Okay. So I'm, I'm really stoked to be even more walking distance because I would usually walk to the IT one all the time and occasionally to the university district one. Um, and the university district one, uh, I guess let me do this. So the 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 one in the international district is about the size of the room that I'm in right now. It's about a thousand square feet or less. <laughs> it is. It is less than 400 square feet in there. It is yeah. a very small shop. Yeah. Uh, whereas the your university district one is huge. I mean, it's it's a pretty decently sized store, and you have a lot of stuff to look at. So yeah, yeah. And It'll this location will will be. I mean, it's not quite as big as the U district location, but it, it's it'll definitely feel more like that one with um yeah you know lots of room to walk around. Um, we have very good storage at this one, which will make you know um. A, this is the not fun, like the not sexy part of business ownership, but, you know, just kind of keeping everything in stock and the sort of uh, ebb and flow of products is a, uh, um, you know, something you're kind of always fighting against. So the more space you have to kind of stockpile things, the easier that gets. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Yay. Hoarding. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing to mention too is that Pinkerella doesn't do any online sales. You do have stuff on the web store where you can buy like t-shirts and cute plushies. Of course, I didn't have it with me. It's right behind me. I don't want to go get it, but cute little Pinkerella plushies. Um, uh, one other thing that you guys sell that I thought was really interesting that I didn't really know about is uh, the bootleg buddy kit. Um, can you explain what that is? Uh, also, I didn't know that like uh, like game, not GameCube, uh, Game Boy games had batteries in them and they go bad. And the reason that most of them die is because of the battery and not because yep. it decided to go corrupt. I didn't know that at all. And so I until I started buying from you. Yeah. Um, so, um, so the bootleg buddy, I, uh, is something I'm, I'm very proud of. It's, it's my, my product. <laughs> um, and it was something that I just, um, I guess probably starting around yeah 2015 2016 started to really see a need for um it's not so much that there were a lot of people like purposefully you know being deceitful about what they were selling um but it's just that it it became very cheap to manufacture uh bootlegs of games um in other countries and so they just you know that just kind of started trickling onto ebay and into into stores um i have seen bootlegs on the shelves of gamestop i mean um it's it's something that i think most people don't even know to look for um and something that i felt really passionate about kind of educating people about because um you know there's there's business reasons for this but there's also um you know ethics reasons and just like for yourself kind of you know personal reasons uh, when you buy um let's say like let's take a pokemon game like a lot of the pokemon games um especially on like the game boy game boy advance are worth you know can be worth upwards of 50 60 dollars they are fairly expensive games um just because demand is so high and um you know when you are buying when you're spending 50 60 dollars on a game um you don't want to buy something that is actually only worth $3 because it is a bootleg that was manufactured, you know, and, um, and sold on eBay or whatever, just from someone who, who doesn't really care what you're getting. Um, so even if you're only paying $15 for it, um, you, you know, you're by all means welcome to do that. They'll, they'll function, uh, you know, pretty much the same, but you definitely don't want to be spending more than a couple of dollars on a bootleg, um, 
you know, and it, it, well, they're not legal to sell, yada, yada, yada. But uh, <laughs> but so, you know, we, we will never sell them no matter what the price is. But um, but, you know, even if you just like you're like, I don't care if it's a bootleg, um, you should at least know that that's what you're buying. Um, so the bootleg buddy is essentially a kit. I wish I had one on me so I could I could show. But it is um, it is a uh, kit. We, that comes we can in we can take a break if you if you want to. Go oh, I, I don't even know where one is Damn, in this room. Okay. Honestly, I'm sorry. Right. No, it's all good. <laughs> I wish I, I had gonna, prepared. I was gonna say I can go grab my little pink gorilla plushie while you're looking for your <laughs> kit, but it's all good. Um, but it's so it's a a set of uh, four screwdrivers in a nice little zipper case with a little like wrist strap on it. Um, and the screwdrivers can help you open just about any type of of game cartridge. Um, that's most of what is bootlegged, you know, there are bootlegged like CDs and DVDs, but that's a lot more, um, that's, that's much more rare and they are far less convincing for the most part. They tend to look very bootlegged. You don't really like need a whole kit for it. Um, and it also comes with a bunch of, uh, little cards that, um, are, they're ed just educational cards for like what to look for, you know, when you're looking at a game, um, you know, what kind of things will stand out as authentic or not authentic um, and just kind of help you. Uh, uh, oh yeah, there you go. You got it right there. So, um, yep. so, you know, it's a kit we sell for 20 bucks um, comes with these four tools and they're pink, which was very important to me <laughs> because uh, got to stay on right. brand. Yeah. I was going to um, say brand. Yeah. Um, and it's really just meant to be like a nice thing that you can carry around with you when you're at flea markets or at conventions or any place that you want to just kind of check and make sure that, you know, you're getting what you're what you're paying for, especially if you are buying something higher end, you know, something that's 50, 60, even like 100 or 200 dollars. You really want to um, open that up and, and make sure that what you're getting is is the real deal and not a, uh, you know, three dollar bootleg from AliExpress. So um <laughs> <laughs> they've they've gone over pretty well i know a lot of people uh I, I they've sold very well i mean i'm very happy that that people have sort of recognized that yeah that's a, a thing that's useful for them um and uh yeah i mean i it's just it's something i care about <laughs> i think that it's good for people to know what they're buying and um you know at least not get not get screwed over either on accident or on purpose Yep. And I'm super thankful for it. I'm also very lazy. So when I buy from Pinkerilla, I know I don't have to do that in the first place because you guys have already done it for me. So yeah, that's, that's another added bonus. But if you're definitely in the Seattle area, <clears throat> whether it be the International District or the coming soon Capitol Hill or the University District, definitely check out any of the stores and spend your money there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so pivoting away from being a co-owner in, in your previous job, let's focus on what your full-time job is, which is being the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Um, can I guess to start out, to set some context, can you explain what the org is and what, and what the mission of the 5013, 5013C, right? Yeah, 501C3, yeah. It's, C3, I always mix those up. Eh, um, it, it, it's a charity, that's the important part. Um, yeah, so uh, we're a nonprofit that uh, is focused on um, game history, preservation, education, and celebration. That's kind of the official mission statement. What that means in practical terms, um, we are, we believe that there are a, there's a real like lack of good video game history content out there. Like if you go to a Barnes and Noble or a bookstore right now um, and you look at their music section or their, uh, 
you know, movie section or any other kind of media, you will see walls and walls of um, books about, um, you know, biographies of musicians or the making of this album or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, if you go to the game section there, it's a much smaller shelf. It is 99% guidebooks and art books. And there's maybe three books on actual, like, you know, video game history or content or a biography or anything like that. Um, that's just books. But the, the point kind of stands that there's really just um, there's not a lot of good uh, historical work out there um, readily available, I should say. Um, and we fully believe that um, this is in huge part to do with the accessibility of like learning about video games. So if you want to learn about how a game was made, um, for the most part, you have very, very little access to anything that'll help you figure that out. Um, you know, developers are very, very closed off. Um, for I mean, this is changing a little bit now, and there are some exceptions to this, obviously. Um, but uh, like Double Fine being a really good example of, you know, a, a company that is very kind of open book with what they're doing. But for the most part, you know, and especially throughout history, a lot of these companies were very, um, you know, cards close to the chest or they just, you know, they're not really exposing anything and they certainly aren't cool with, um, you know, uh, if the source code for a game even retained is, uh, you know, has been retained somehow with, uh, you know, people poking through it and, you know, lots of legal reasons and stuff for that. But um, the point is, you know, if you want to learn about how a game was made or like how it was marketed or the people that worked on it, um, there's really just kind of nowhere to go. You know, traditional libraries don't don't uh, collect this stuff. And um, so we, I mean, that's what we're doing is we're collecting this stuff and we're working on making it um, extremely accessible to people. Uh, we are in the middle of working on like our, what the dream thing has been all along, which is basically just a big online portal for accessing all of our archives. Um, this stuff is expensive to build, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that. yeah. And libraries have a lot of protections for copyright and, you know, research and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, there's, there's hurdles and stuff there too. But I mean, the, the, the basic gist of what we do is we're trying to uh, get resources into the hands of people for studying these things. So we are, you know, finding developers who used to work in the game industry. We're basically just being like, what do you still have left? Are you willing to let us, you know, um, digitize it, let people access it? Um, we have had a good amount of success doing that with developers specifically based in Chicago, because that's where there are uh, basements and large houses and that sort of thing. <laughs> so people, people hold on to things um, a lot more so than they do if they worked on games in say the Bay area or in Seattle. But, um, you know, I mean, we're, we want to expose this stuff to people so that they can, um, you know, learn about it and hopefully make really good content about it. So, um, you know, we are collecting every, I mean, eventually every, uh, magazine that covered video games right now, it's just, a. U.S. English language is the vast majority of our collection, but we have a bunch of Japanese stuff, a bunch of uh, um, European stuff. Um, we have sent over 1,100, we've scanned over 1,100 magazines that are, um, you know, now available on, on retro mags and on the Internet Archive and that sort of thing. Um, 
So it's really just about um, getting this sort of information that's not otherwise easily accessible to people um, into their hands. And yeah, it's everything from, you know, how games were were marketed and played and, you know, things like things like the magazines, but also things that were sent to the magazines, things like a, a press kit, you know, um, a company might send a magazine like a big uh, binder full of stuff that's like, here's what you should say about Gex on, you know, <laughs> on the 3DO or whatever. Um, and the magazine might be like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll say this and we'll say this and we'll use that art. And, you know, but what about all of the other stuff they sent in that binder? Like, what else was it important for? Um, did the company think it was important for you to know about Gex? You know, a historian might be interested in that. So um, all of that. And then all of the um, development side of stuff. So, you know, that's obviously things like it going down to things like uh, concept art and original sketches, um, you know, actual code. Um, it's even like photos of the development team or, um, you know, internal correspondence. You might have like a, a letter from one guy to another that's like, you really should change this because, you know, uh, Nintendo's not going to allow us to have a, a, a cross in our game or whatever. And, you know, like it's just, it's contextual things like that that kind of help you learn more about how um, a game came together. Obviously, in a perfect world, any historian could just interview any person that worked on a game. But um, while that's still mostly possible right now in 2022, uh, they are starting to get old. So <laughs> that will not always be possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's very, very long winded. We do some other stuff, too. Um, we do like a pop up museum at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo every year. Uh, we provide art assets to companies who have lost them because companies lose their own art all the time. And that we, <laughs> you know, we find someone who worked for them 15 years ago and we digitize it from their collection. And um, and then later on, you know, they're like, hey, uh, do you have the cover art for, you know, for this game? It's like, yeah, we do actually. Here you go. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, I'm sure I'm missing some stuff, but uh, lots and lots of ways of uh, uh, preserving video game history all in the name of, uh, you know, making it more accessible to people and, and making sure it's safe. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's very few organizations. I mean, there are other organizations that are doing that, um, specifically like the Strong Museum of Play in, Ro in Rochester, New York, uh, and also the National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas. Um, and kind of touching on what you mentioned before in terms of like press kits and like the amount of research that you have to do, um, I was listening to a previous interview that you had done where you had more or less pieced together all of the anecdotes and thing, facts about the, it was like a stationary bike for the Super Famicom. Was that it? Uh, yeah. For the Super Nintendo. Um, Super Nintendo. Yeah. That is, that is a, um, a very good uh, illustration of the kind of thing that we're trying to make easier. So when I was, um, I, that video is on my YouTube channel um, and I, I did a ton of research, just kind of like, you know, this newspaper might've said, you know, two sentences about it. This newspaper said two sent two different sentences about it. This magazine said something different. And all in all, when you know, all of that research kind of combined, I ended up getting just about every, you know, fact that was sent out to the media that you could print. Um, and then later on when we were um, at Game Informer magazine, um, kind of helping them go through uh, long story, but but Game Informer, uh, they've been around since 92, and they uh, had a room where they were just kind of throwing everything they were sent 
as the press, which is incredible. Um, there will never be anything like that ever again. Um, and so we were, you know, helping them go through that and, and digitizing it for five weeks um, and did not get through all of it. But in doing that, um, we found uh, the actual press kit from uh, Life Fitness that they had sent out to the magazines. And it was just, you know, it's just a simple like two page fact sheet. And um, yeah, I'm like, if I had just had this, not to say I wouldn't have like read all of the newspaper articles and stuff, but like, I wouldn't have had to piece all of that together. I would have just been like, okay, this is everything they wanted you to know about this. And, you know, no one printed the whole two pages of it because that would be crazy. But, uh, you know, <laughs> between like 16 sources, they almost did. <laughs> right. It's a, it's like if eternal life was like a, like a cake recipe and you had pieced together all the ingredients from everything else. And then you finally get the real recipe. You're like, yep. Oh, I could like, have I, I did this a long time ago. Yeah, like I okay, I figured out the eggs, I did figure out the flour and everything, but man, it would have been so much easier if you had just given me this in the first place. Or I could just buy buy the stupid cheat cake from Costco. What are you gonna do? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I mean you illustrated it very well. Um, just kind of talking about like you're not just cataloging games, it's all the other things around games, the actual creation of games. Yeah, and um, in fact, that is something that sets us apart from um some of the other uh, institutions you, you talked about is we actually don't collect games at all. Um, and mostly because we think other institutions are doing um, a plenty good job. Uh, plus collectors are doing a pretty decent job of it. Um, that if you need to reference a retail game for the most part, you're going to be able to um, both physically and especially digitally, because I think by this point, everybody knows that ROM sites exist. Um, so we don't collect games at all. Um, and, you know, both, uh, the strong and um, especially NVM are, are certainly more um, museum forward, I would say, you know, like we're not a museum, we're an archive. Um, the strong is both. Um, and the National Video Game Museum is is, um, is a museum. Um, and I, I believe they have some um, archival plans, but, uh, you know, at least as of right now, just have a, a museum. But um, yeah, we don't we don't do anything with games. We are all about just kind of the the everything else behind the games because um, if you are writing a book about a game or making a documentary or a YouTube video or an article or um, even just like a school paper or something, um, we believe and we can help you out if you can't. But we believe you can probably figure out where to get the game itself and look at that and you know the cover art and the the uh, cartridge art and uh, play the game and everything. And that, that gets you, that gets you some of the story, but um, certainly not enough to write a book on. So. Makes sense. Um, so you mentioned uh, digitizing documents. What are some of the most challenging and tedious portions of doing what you do are? <laughs> uh, well, I'll start with tedious. I mean, like, you know, destapling things as a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> can be a pretty long process. We, um, at the end of the Game Informer trip, we had um, like two big cups full of staples, which it, it takes a lot of paper to get, um, you know, any like visible quantity of staples. Staples are very small. Um, but oh, gosh, the challenges go on forever and ever. I mean, um, I, I won't even get into things like, what do you do about mobile games? What do you do about, you know, it, a lot of that stuff is kind of outside of our, our realm. But, um, you know, even in dealing with older uh, stuff, which 
theoretically should be easier because things were sent on paper or maybe they were sent on, um, you know, on floppy, which is a volatile media, but it's still like a, you know, they still make floppy drives. It's, it's not super hard um, or CD or DVD or something like that. Um, you also have a lot of things that, um, you know, have tool dependencies that uh, may no longer be available anywhere. So um, you may have, I mean, we have situations where we have um, most of the source of a game, um, you know, kind of all of the things that go into making up a game uh, that would be compiled together to create the actual game um, and no build tool. And the build tool is from 1993 and it doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, like, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of thing. So um and uh, and also tape backups were a very popular way of backing up hard drives um, back then. And it is not a standardized thing. There were like, you know, five or six different companies selling you different ways to um, back up your hard drive onto a tape, but require that specific program and, you know, maybe that specific version of that specific program to be readable in any sense. Um, right. That tapes are a nightmare. I mean, there's there's all kinds of like just media and um, uh, like tool dependency things that can get very, very difficult. Um, you know, scanning things is not difficult. Uh, it can be tedious, I guess, but it's not difficult. Um, but yeah, once you start getting into the, the digital born uh, things, uh, it can start getting pretty complicated. Um, so pivoting away from your professional career and into your personal stuff. So one of the things that I, I really appreciate about um, what mostly what your collection is focused around and like what you're passionate about is that you're passionate about handheld games, which um, not a lot of people are passionate about. And I think that's really awesome that you kind of focus your collection around that specifically in addition to Wonder Swan, which I'm going to ask you about very shortly, <laughs> and Animal Crossing. Um, the nice. full Wonder Swan set is uh, behind me on that side, but I'll... <laughs> Getting ahead of myself. Um, but let's let's kind of start with just talking about handhelds first. Um, so I don't feel like handheld consoles and games really get the love that they deserve, because um, a lot of people focus more on the consoles or PCs, whatever. Um, so given that the fact that you're a connoisseur, um, what are some handheld games and or consoles that people should take the time to play? Ooh, uh, well, I'll start, I'll start with a more obvious one and maybe work backwards. Um, I think everybody in the world should have a DS Lite. It is basically the most, uh, it is a, a perfect handheld system as far as I'm concerned. It's just a very sleek, slim, light, uh, you know, works very well, works very reliably. Um, the DS is such an incredible and versatile system. Um, you know, since you can play both DS and Game Boy Advance games, you get like a very wide range of, of stuff you can play. Um, really nice screen. Uh, that's probably like the handheld that I'm like, no, literally everyone can find some stuff to enjoy on that. And it's just a very well put together handheld. Um, so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I am, I am really into the uh, Bandai Wonder Swan, which is a um, Japan and Korea only console that um, I think is, you don't have to have one, but I think everyone should know about it and sort of appreciate it <laughs> a little bit. Um, it is uh, a system that was, um, 
sort of originally designed by Gunpei Akoi, who is the brains behind a lot of things at Nintendo, a lot of their um, early toys, um, uh, behind the Game Boy, um, you know, behind the Game & Watch, a lot of their sort of early uh, big successes there. Um, and he left Nintendo uh, and founded this company called Koto Laboratories. Um, he unfortunately passed away before the Wonderswan ever made it to market. Um, but uh, it is very much like a, it's a very Nintendo feeling console without being a Nintendo console. Um, very, very sharp screen for, there, there's a couple versions of it. The original one is just a black and white. It's very, very sharp black and white screen. Um, at, at least in terms of like the contrast and that sort of thing. It, there's, you get a little bit of ghosting issues on it, but not nearly as bad as the original Game Boy. Um, right. But it, it, in theory, can be played both. Uh, I, I always have one of these in reach, um, <laughs> both uh, horizontally and vertically. So not every game takes advantage of that, but it's certainly something that um, uh, you know kind of sets it apart, and um, I think encourages some really interesting development on it. Um, the other really cool thing about it that I like, because I mean, again, this is a Japanese system. It was very heavy on the RPGs, so it's not something that everyone um, that I you know, if you aren't into puzzle games or, um, you know, it's got some some decent platformers, a um, couple of shoot 'em ups on it, a um, couple of fighting games. But if that's not your thing and you don't speak Japanese, um, you probably don't have a whole heck of a lot of a reason to pick one up. Um, but, you know, if, if you do, then, then excellent. Um, but what really makes it interesting is um, that it is kind of the the home of a very early homebrew and indie scene so there was a uh a development kit for it that you could just buy um commercially you didn't have to like you know be a game company and submit for one or anything like that you could just order one um and you could program your own games and they held competitions for um you know uh for these games and the the winners of these competitions would get their games um, put onto a cartridge and, and sold commercially. So um, it's a very, very cool system just for sort of, you know, it never really captured a huge share of the market in Japan. It never really took off, but it's a really, really cool vision of what a very open console like that could be um, and what the sort of like creativity of the the homebrew and, and indie uh, dev could be before that was... Um, you know, before Steam, like before that was a, a super easy thing to break into. Um, and there's been a, a ton of weird uses for it over the years. Um, there is, uh, I found a blog where some um, some people turned it into a uh, the computer you'd use in like your skydiving kit. So it, uh, <laughs> they like attached GPS to it and like, you know, made, um, I don't actually know what you need to go skydiving, um, but, you know, something about coordinates and, and air quality and, and um, height and I don't know, that sort of elevation, that sort of thing. Right. Um, people have put emulators on it, um, which is wild because it's not a very powerful system. Um, people have, uh, you know, turned it into all manner of just kind of like weird um, other computing uses. I mean, commercially, they sold a fishing sonar for it. They sold a pregnancy tracker for it. Um, they sold a little like robot bug that you'd control with your Wonder Swan. I mean, it's it's a it's a very versatile little system. So um, I'm 
I'm very into it. Um, I think that was probably what you wanted to ask next and not what, <laughs> not no, what you were asking of me, but, um, I don't, I don't need to, I mean, natural conversations just to just flow totally fine. I'm not looking here to interrupt you. You were going for it. So I just let you go for it. So. Yeah. Um, I think if you're, if all of that sounds cool to you, the modern, the modern equivalent is the play date and everyone should pick up a play date. Those are really cool. Um, you know, the little the little yellow system with the crank, it's also extremely open. They have, you know, just a, anyone can kind of drag and drop, create their own game and, and sell it on the marketplace and distribute it and stuff. And it's just a very, you know, simple but very open um, system like that for for a, um, an indie slash homebrew scene. I collect a lot of really weird handhelds. I don't actually like recommend any of them. Like I, you know, I've got a, a full Cougar Boy set. Um, I've got like the Game King, the Game Mate, the, you know. Uh, You're mentioning some international handhelds. At this yeah. Point. <laughs> yeah. Um, the One Station that I'm just looking up now, trying to see what all I have. I have a lot of just very strange, you know, Gizmondo, Zodiac. Like, I don't actually recommend any of these. They're just kind of neat. Um, and I think that, um, you know, especially in the age before we all had smartphones or before smartphones were really a thing. Um, handhelds were uh n not all of them were obviously trying to be what a smartphone is now but i think all of them sort of had um there was some dream of that some spark of that that was alive in handhelds before that i mean uh we've always we've always wanted a cool computer in our pockets and uh you know even even the game boy had things like um, an English to Spanish dictionary in it or a travel guide or something like that. Like these were all cartridges you could get for your Game Boy and play. So, yeah, I was just going to say with you switching the orientation of the Wonder Swan going from horizontal to landscape, like that's absolutely like, especially in the early days of mobile development, that's something you had to wrestle with. It was like, okay, if you're horizontal, you're more of a serious game. Whereas if you're landscape, you're more casual because. Right you got to think about the usability of play where like, if I have, if I have my phone, I can play it on the, like on the bus one handed right. standing up while my other hand is holding on the rail. So it makes it a more casual game. Whereas if it's horizontal, I need both hands or if I'm disabled, maybe I only have one hand. So it's all about accessibility and like how, you know, where are people going to play your game and, um, uh, how are they going to interact with it is, is super important. So the fact that they had the, the fourth, the forethought to show, give a console like the Wonder Swan accessibility options of like, I can play some landscaper or, um, uh, horizontal, like that's wild. So, yeah. And I mean, to be clear, not, not a ton of games really take advantage of that, but the ones that do are very cool. So <laughs> for sure. Um, so kind of building on that, like with the release of the Nintendo Switch in 2017 and Valve creating the Steam Deck, um, the separation between a powerful PC or a home console versus like a nerfed handheld device. I mean, I grew up playing like the Tiger Electronics like version of like Virtua Fighter and stuff like that, which yeah. is god awful. And I, I had a Game & Watch when I was a kid too. I actually love Game & Watch. But calling that anything close to a Nintendo game is laughable. Um, but the the delta bit between a console and handheld device continues to shrink to where now with the Switch and the Steam Deck and with the Vita before that and even with the PSP a little bit, um, you know, you have more serious mobile games or handheld games in general. Um, where do you see the handheld game and or like uh, market heading, given the fact that we're kind of at this like watershed moment of it's pretty serious already? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think this was always kind of like the the dream of the handheld gamer was that it would just be the same games you're playing on console, but but in your hands. So, I mean, I think that's the gap on that continues to close and probably basically will close. But what we're seeing um, kind of parallel to that is um, things like the play date where um, there is still, you know, not a huge demand, but there is still a demand for these kind of like bespoke, you know, interesting experiences that can only happen on a handheld. And I think that's um, right now that's mostly uh, just filled by the playdate. Um, but I would not be surprised if that just kind of becomes, you know, a new, a new kind of trajectory for handheld gaming is that we get a little bit of this um, smaller bespoke market for, uh, for interesting experiences like that. Um. So as a as a collector and as a retailer and as a, and as a historian, what games are you chasing after right now? Ooh, um, well, I as I alluded to earlier, I have completed my Wonder Swan set, so I have every Wonder Swan game ever made, um, which means I'm not chasing a whole heck of a lot right now. There's a couple like box variants I could go after if I really wanted to. It's you know I'll get to at some point, but. Um, Man, uh, I don't add to my collection very often these days, to be honest. It is, um, it's whenever something um, excites me or inspires me. So I think the, um, a lot of the more recent stuff is some of those stranger handhelds that I have. Um, I got some of those earlier this year. Um, you know, occasionally pick up a, a, a cool looking import or two, but, you know, people assume, I think, a lot that I, I, take all the good stuff from my store and I really almost never take anything out of my own store. I'm, I'm lucky enough that I started collecting, you know, in, in the uh, early 2010s and um, I've, I've amassed a pretty good collection and everything's pretty expensive now. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> nice. Um, and as a, as a retailer, I guess, what are, what are things you're constantly, what are some games you're constantly chasing after? And also a historian, like what are some things that are kind of like white whales for you in terms of the things that you're chasing after? So in, in the stores, I mean, it's always just the popular stuff. It's the Pokemons, the, the Mario's, the Zelda's like that's, that's always the most popular um, stuff that, that sells the best. And you know, that we, we, pay the highest percentage <laughs> for the most part, you know, I mean, it's, um, it's a constant struggle to keep kind of the, the classics in. Um, and for the foundation, I mean, it's really, I don't know that there's one thing that would uh, change my life. Cause it, it's always very dependent on just kind of who we're talking to. I mean, we've, um, we have some, you know, developers we're working with to digitize their, um, their life's work. And within that, I always find something really, really exciting. Um, maybe not exciting to everybody, but you know, like design documents um, over the years for a game and, you know, being able to see how it changed and that sort of thing. Um, if I had to name an actual white whale, I mean, one of my favorite games of all time is uh, the original Animal Crossing, and it has a very, very interesting development history. Um, I would love to see more uh, development uh, talk and documentation from that. Um, but I am not exactly super, uh, confident that Nintendo's ever <laughs> gonna, uh, share any of that stuff. So that's a, that is truly a white whale. 
Yeah, I was going to say Nintendo has always been kind of a black box about that kind of stuff. But that's actually related to my last question for you. And it's very serious. Are you ready? So you've mentioned before, uh, I'm assuming that your favorite Animal Crossing villager is the same. Is it Midge? It is. Yeah. Wow. When did I say that? Don't worry about it. I do my research. too. (laughs) Um, So given the fact that that's your favorite all time Animal Crossing villager, who is the worst? Animal Crossing villager of all Ooh. time. So I'm very strongly, especially after New Horizons came out, I'm very strongly anti like, um, you know, people hating on villagers aesthetically because I just it's always been like this. I mean, I've been a part of the Animal Crossing community for forever. Uh, was a was a moderator on an old Animal Crossing forum forever ago when I was like 11 years old. Um, but uh, yeah, there's oh gosh. What is my least favorite Animal Crossing character? It's it's probably one of the like special characters that I just think is um is kind of useless. And I'm trying to think who that would be. Cause like all the villagers are just doing their best, as far as I'm concerned. They're all like, you know, Except, you might ex- you might think one of them's ugly or whatever. Oh, you know what? Okay, I will go with a with a villager. Um I don't even know if he's still in the games anymore, but there was a frog named Wart Jr., which was is such an un- unfortunate name and unfortunate look. And he was just a, a pimply brown frog. And um, just it's not his fault, but it's a very, very unfortunate looking villager. Oh, I wish I had a better answer for that. I'm like looking over at my this, this Animal guy. Crossing collection for clues or something. Um, Cap'n's a little creepy. I'll, I can might go with that. Hippo is my is my least favorite. Mm, yeah, yeah. I got I got I got stuck with him. I had to do everything possible to try to kick him off my island, but they always suggest everybody but him to get kicked yep. off. So it it knows somehow it knows. Yeah, good times. All right, Kelsey. Thank you so so much. Your time has been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you for sharing so much about your personal and professional career. Yeah, Very thanks great. for having me. Um, before we take off, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Um, social media sites, cool things happening in your life? The floor is sure. yours. Uh, yeah, if you want to follow um, my podcast with the Video Game History Foundation, it is called the Video Game History Hour. Um, it's on you know all the places you get your podcasts. Um, check out the Video Game History Foundation, gamehistory.org. See if it's something that speaks to you. And yeah, if you're in the Seattle area, um, please come check out Pink Gorilla Games. We've got... Um, you know, we're about to have three locations and all three are going to be very, very accessible to um, any place you'd be staying if you are visiting Seattle because they're all in, in Seattle proper. They're all very close to major transit lines. So, yeah, I was going to say you're, you're north, south and east now. So it's going to be very exciting. Well, actually, yeah. north, south and central kind of. Yeah. So that's awesome. All right, Kelsey, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Everybody else, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.